Hi, I'm Ron Coleman, a partner in the Dillon Law Group, social media legend and free speech enthusiast. When I started the Coleman Nation podcast in the spring of 2021, its focus was on free expression and censorship on the internet. But as important as that subject is to me, which is very important, I felt hemmed in in the podcast. I wanted to spend more time talking to the interesting people I've met in my legal and free speech work without feeling a need to have them all make the same point. So I culminated the first series of the podcast and have started the second series. I hope you'll enjoy these conversations as much as I have recording them. Hello, culminators. Uh, we, are we are recording today on Labor Day. You'll be hearing this several days of labor after we record it. But there's that special frisson in the air. And it's not just because it's Labor Day. It's because today I'm talking to Glenn Reynolds, known to the, to the world, of course, as Instapundit. Glenn is notable for being one of the most influential social media figures to have walked away from Twitter. Um, that, we're hardly going to talk about that at all if we even talk about it any more than we have. Um, Glenn is a professor of law. He is the Beauchamp Brogan Distinguished Professor of Law at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville, college at University of Tennessee, then, of course, on to Yale Law. Glenn's a constitutional scholar. He's a space law scholar. He's a space cowboy, as far as I understand, or maybe I could be misunderstanding something there. Bet you weren't but, ready for that. <laughs> Glenn and I go way back. And culmination listeners are, are, are quite tired of hearing me say that. But in the case of Glenn Reynolds, it's much, much more interesting because Glenn really, Glenn used to be known back when blogging mattered more to more people as the blog father. And today blogging is a relatively niche proposition because of reasons. But uh, Glenn has a very good reason for continuing to prefer his Instapundit blog, which uh, sometime after I started paying less attention to blogs was became a group blog and Glenn decided that he needed some some aspect of having a life other than being online all the time and producing all the content so uh, but if you go I mean look at look at the comment numbers on these okay this is a this is a living breathing community of bloggy goodness yes and and, and there's a list if you read on on Wikipedia oh there are of hundreds of blogs that are acknowledged offspring of instapundit.com. My blog is not in there. I didn't, I didn't merit to be on that list, but to this day, to this day, I realized that certain phrases and ticks and shtick of, of my social media are the product of instapundit. And I, I really don't think that this much introduction should be necessary, but it, very may, it may very well be. Also, something else I learned from Glenn Reynolds before we get to the Glenn Reynolds interview is I first, that's when I first heard of a lady named Amy Wax. I, I have such a clear mental picture of the Amy Wax link on Instapundit to her book about how bourgeois values 
old fashioned getting married and having kids and hard work, those kind of cliche things were were such important predictors of success. And 20 years later, I don't know, 15 years later, here is Mr. Pundit linking to Jane Coleman, Jane, my wife Coleman's, like, like Glenn, I have a brilliant and beautiful and often published other better half, uh, writing her article in Legal Insurrection about uh, the, the, the story of Amy Wax. And uh, I'm going to take that off your screen, folks, because if, if you link to a single link on Instapundit, you do get some pretty funny looking ads, which is de, de rigueur for the internet these days. I think, Glenn, you know what I'm talking about? It's all based on your browser history, man. So don't blame me for whatever you get. Diabetes, fungus, wrinkles. Man, I tried to tell you something. <laughs> Maybe it's trying to tell me something about what my browser history needs. Glenn, welcome. Now that I've given you all this, all this history and all this praise, I thank you again for coming on today. What's how you doing? Oh, pretty well, pretty well. I take it a fairly relaxed Labor Day today. Um, getting ready to go back to work for the week and travel. I spent the weekend. I had a book chapter that I had to edit and send back and another article I had to edit and send back. And having done that, I decided I was done for the weekend. I, so it was a, it was a laboring a lab, yeah. Labor Day weekend. I honored labor by performing labor, yes. That is very, very meaningful. Well, it also helps that it was too rainy to go to the lake. Yeah, having some some nasty weather there. Here in here in northern New Jersey, it is hot. Like it's what happened to the August blast that we were promised. It's not it's not showing up. You, Glenn, um, have written about so many things. You've got you tell me, for example, the article in the book. You don't have to you don't have to okay. do any spoilers, but what's what's on your plate right the now? The article is for the new criterion um, symposium that's coming out on the affirmative action cases currently before the Supreme Court, the higher ed affirmative action cases, Harvard and the Asians, and then also the UNC case. Um, and one of the points I make in it, I, I don't want to give everything away, but th this has actually become sort of the lens through which I'm viewing a lot of stuff right now. It's actually a concept from corporate finance where people have been talking for decades about the separation of ownership and control, which basically means that the shareholders own the corporation, but management really controls it. And management tends to run things for management's own benefit, despite their alleged fiduciary duty to the shareholders. Um, and what, I, what I've noticed is that this actually applies to all our institutions. Um, for example, higher education is oh, allegedly run for the benefit of students and faculty who have the least control over what happens in a university right. uh, compared to administrators and donors and uh, well, mostly administrators and donors, to be honest. Uh, and, and of those two, mostly administrators. Uh, and, and so I sort of talk about that in, in, in the context of a number of facts. I mean, I mentioned some others, but I talk about affirmative action. Then there's just this whole list of policy preferences that Americans by pretty big majorities reject. Uh, affirmative action in higher education, for example, uh, I think 78% of Americans are against taking race and gender into account. Um, and yet, it's a favorite with the people who run things, and they act as if there's a big 
uh, mandate for that. When there's well, it's not, it's entirely their own preference. And again, it's the separation of ownership and control to the point where they're now just sort of telling the people out there, you may own these institutions, but we control them. Screw you. And that's well, actually kind of the theme of the last few years. Oh, but I tried and I'll submit to you then in fact that that has that has even extended to the point where donors to be a big to be a donor who matters now. Ten million dollars is not is not going to do it, not not in the schools where, you know, where you and I went to law school, if I can lump Yale and Northwestern into the same sentence that way. But I mean, the, the wealthy national schools, the top tier schools couldn't care less what mere donors Maybe donors who are BlackRock or donors who are CalPERS, you know, or that level of donor. And you also, I mean, one of the things we see in the Amy Wax situation, which uh, is that, you know, so you, ha you had one donor actually resign over it, no effect whatsoever. And it's the students, or at least the loudest students, important distinction, right, who are actually, you can't say that, that they're not involved in policy making they're they're deciding what the policy of the school should be well and the dean kowtows to them you have a very important lesson for dealing with bureaucracies which people on the left have known for a long time and people on the right don't get yet and that is bureaucrats can't be fired and you can't really cut their salary but you can control the mic affecting their quality of life and the left has figured out how to make the quality of life of a law school dean or administrator miserable and as a result they get what they want People on the right are too polite. They say, we're better than that. We don't do that. We believe in civility and decorum. Well, uh, no, that means you're a sucker, okay? You're like some British general in 1914 saying, we had the Germans defend their trenches with machine guns, but that's because the Huns are bastards. We would never do that. Well, if you're one of those people, you're an idiot. You deserve it. You deserve Jer to lose. Jeremy, did we get Jesse Kelly today? I thought we had Glenn Reynolds on today. <laughs> Boy, you have radicalized you, Glenn Reynolds. I've always been radical. The world's just made it more significant. <laughs> you're exactly. You're, 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 it is. It is amazing. And here's the thing about the administrative state, which is to a large extent what we're seeing go on here, which is that administrators, as you said, since they're essentially, you know, uh, baked in, they it, quality of life is all that really matters to them. That's what motivates a, them. There's a famous statement from, um, I forget, the famous, a famous 30s economist who said, he wasn't talking about administrators, he said, a, a comfortable life is the best monopoly profit. And that's sort of true for administrators too. That's what they want. And if you want to change that, you have to make their lives uncomfortable. And you know, I teach administrative law and I tell my students, the basic rule of bureaucrats is, if it's easier to do what you want, than it is to do something else, they will tend to do what you want. And if it's easier to do something else than to do what you want, then they will generally do something else. And your job is to adjust the incentives so that uh, they do what you want. And that's not just true for lawyers. So what is the, you, what's the phrase you used a couple of minutes ago uh, to describe the, uh, this cleavage between ownership and management or ownership? The separation of ownership and control. It's ownership a, and control, okay. It's an old corporate finance, it goes back to the article by Burl and Means from I think the 30s or 40s. Uh, and they were concerned, you know, with shareholder uh, welfare and management running away with salaries and policies. And, and we certainly still see lots of that in the corporate world. Uh, but and in also applies, in law firms. Yes. Oh, absolutely. 
Uh, in fact, you know, of course, then there's the sad story where you're, you know, uh, all those poor lawyers at Finley Cumble going way back, or at my old law firm, Dewey Ballantyne, later Dewey <laughs> LeBeouf, who found out that they were partners, so they were owners, but they had no control, but they were still liable for the debts. That's sort of all of us now. Um, anyway, the, the upshot is uh, the world is run by people who, in fact, don't uh, face consequences when they get it wrong. Exactly. And, yeah, and yet who have a lot of control over other people's money and freedom and everything else. And there's another term for this, because this is where um, you know, capitalism and Marxism together. Uh, you know, in the Soviet Union, there was a famous dissident named Milovan Gilos, who wrote a book called The New Class in the 70s. And his analysis was basically this. Gee, communists are big on class warfare, and we always hear about the workers and the peasants against capitalists. Now, we've gotten rid of the capitalists, and yet the workers and the peasants still seem to be at the bottom of the pecking order. The only difference is that the capitalists and the aristocracy have been replaced by what he called a new class of Prats and managers who, you know, ran the communist state for their own benefit. So if you're- The apparatchiks. Right, if you're one of the apparatchiks, you shop at the special stores and you get to travel abroad and you can have a car and a TV. Uh, and if not, if you're one of the workers and the peasants, you get to wait in a line for bread and uh, you know, you're, you're nobody and you better not cross one of the apparatchiks because even though it's supposed to be an equal society where everyone calls each other comrade, uh, you'll find out just how false that is if you actually uh, say the wrong thing. And he was put in jail for that because it was such an obvious truth that uh, the, the structure of communist society could not, and as it turned out, did not withstand that truth being spoken. And uh, you talk about Amy Wax. I mean, there's certain people in our society who are also speaking obvious truths who are getting the same kind of treatment and for the same reason, which is because the entire superstructure, to use another communist term, uh, can't survive if people pay attention to what's really going on. In other words, it's, uh, consciousness can be raised too much. <laughs> Certainly too much for uh, certain people. Yes, I mean, you know, it, I, I kept in my, in my fascinating career thinking that there was a place for me in larger institutional law firms, because that's where the better work tends to be. And surely, as a renowned genius, I should be able to be compensated commensurate to my ability to do the better work for the more important cases. Survey says wrong, because Ron Coleman, you're going to piss somebody off every time, no matter where you land, someone's going to decide that one of your clients or one of your causes, whether it's suing for BLM being painted on the street, or whether it's representing Gavin McInnes, whatever it is, or rep you're not, you're, you are rocking the boat. It, it's a it's just so fascinating to me, this control versus ownership point that that, that that was what you landed on, because Jeremy, who's listening to our conversation right now, my producer, will recall that how many times has come up in the last few interviews that we've done, and particularly in the in the corporate setting, because you know, and I've told this story before. I I have a friend who walked out of a shiny new equity partnership in one of the major money center law firm um, law firms when he realized that the people who were even older than I was, but the, the sixty to seventy crowd, the guys who were really basically running the firms. And he's a guy who's 40 something. 
are making decisions, making to, to, for the comfort that comes with being woke and being liberal, but that spelled doom for the ability of his his generation of partners being able to get quality work done when these guys are completely retired and cashed out. Oh, absolutely. And, and you see that in the corporate world too. You know, if you're a corporate right. manager or a CEO, uh, that sort of posturing gets you uh, kudos from your social set. Um, and that's what you mostly care about because you're already rich. Uh, you know, and, and it yet it tends to cripple the company. And we see, you know, the slogan, get woke, go broke is a pretty apt one because in fact, as companies do this, uh, they get praise usually for people who don't even buy their products uh, in exchange for which they uh, alienate their core customer base and go broke, or at least take a big financial hit. Which may not be a short-term no. phenomenon for because for example I, I keep coming back i don't know why this is the example that always comes into my mind i'm just a regular guy but fat victoria's secret models cannot cannot be good for business but we're gonna get them we're gonna get them because they make everyone especially fat people which is 90 percent of, of america these days i've seen your pictures so let's not rub in what you've accomplished over the last 10 years or so but you know at least you're not giving us the tom fitton treatment um <laughs> i i admire his accomplishments as well um but it so i mean i have this discussion with a lot of people who follow this stuff and some of them are of the view that well no this is really what this is what the constituencies who manage things, which which can can also be lower level. You see, in Twitter, there was all this pushback over cha policy changes that might come with a change of ownership from sub mid management people, but who are nonetheless are on the line and making decisions about banning and censoring. On the one hand, and on the other hand, the social circle that the people in Silicon Valley are constantly incestuously inhabiting. Um, it wasn't actually the point that I wanted to make though, which was the, actually the point I wanted to make. You see, I, I did, too many browsers are open at the same time. And I didn't know which was the one I started out on. The point I wanted to make was that we, it's not a long, it, it, we have to be making an argument for a medium or long-term effect. Because in the, you know, people who buy Victoria's Secret stuff probably continue buying it for a while. But for purposes of building your brand so that a new generation that's coming up will associate your brand with the good stuff, the good looking chicks, the good looking body in a good looking uh, uh, lingerie, you're throwing that, you're throwing that in the garbage. So you, Glenn, famously, at least as I remember it when I was more involved in in, in your stuff was you are you I assume you're still a libertarian so what's the best libertarian how do libertarians wrestle with this and there are a lot of theoretical ways I imagine you can come at it but obviously there's something about the way the market's working now that ain't working for the market well, you know, when I, I took corporate law a long time ago, it's not, I don't practice corporate law uh, 
I mean, every once in a while I dabble in something related to it, but it's not my field. Uh, but I took it from Ralph Winter, who was a Second Circuit judge, as well as a former Yale professor, very smart guy. And one of the things we spent some time on was the history of sort of corporate social responsibility and how, say, 100 years ago or more, the notion of a corporation making a big donation to charity was actually very controversial because the idea is, wait a minute, you, the president of this company, are taking shareholder money and giving it to some cause that you think is worthy, but it's not your money. And your job, your fiduciary responsibility is to make money for the shareholders. And if you're not doing that, you're not doing your job, you're stealing shareholder money. And this was widely thought for a long time. If you go back far enough to say Davy Crockett speaking in US Congress, members of Congress felt that way about charity being voted by the US Congress too, which is Davy Crockett actually, they were voting a pension for somebody and Davy Crockett said, I'll happily contribute out of my own pocket. And if everybody in Congress contributes the same amount, it'll be more than we're talking about appropriating. But we shouldn't be taking money from taxpayers who may have less to fund this just because we like it. It'll make us feel good. Well, why does that why does that resonate? What is it in recent news that makes that resonate? Yeah, right. And then so anyway, gradually, partly because the sort of chattering classes in America who tend to set attitudes are I won't call them parasites, but let's say they're more likely to be the recipient of largesse than the maximizers of profit for anyone. Uh, they like the idea of money being given away. So right. gradually attitudes were shifted to the point where we saw it as a good thing for corporations to give money away. And now, you know, we, we had various things. I mean, you're familiar with the business judgment rule and various ways in which courts basically relaxed the responsibility of management to do anything that benefits shareholders. Uh, now the attitude is, well, if you don't like how the company's being run, sell your stock. I mean, you may lose some money because I've already run into the ground, but sell your stock. Uh, the notion that uh, they should just not be allowed to do things because they're not consistent with uh, what shareholders buy stock for just isn't, uh, isn't part of the law anymore. Uh, and you see much of the same kind of thing uh, in, in the world of government. We've given the federal government much more of a free hand since the New Deal era to do all kinds of things that it didn't used to be allowed to do. And we've accepted justifications for things that basically boil down to, wouldn't it be nice if blank? Um, and that's not how a government of limited powers is supposed to work. So to answer your question, as a libertarian, what would I do? Make people do their damn jobs. And if you limited politicians and business leaders to doing their damn jobs, uh, most of the threats to liberty that we deal with today would go away. Not all of them, but I'd be willing to take that success and run with it. So a lot more accountability for those who are in the position of regulating the regime that exists now. Yes. And that, that includes corporate, academic, judicial. You know, I ran a Twitter poll. Glenn, I'm a real Twitter god now. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm a real big, big, big shot. So when I run a Twitter poll, I get votes. And I said, okay, gang, this was already, this was might even be before the 2020 election or maybe right after it, which branch of government failed most profoundly? And the answers were, I think more legislative than executive. And I said, you're all wrong. It's judicial. Judges have, have absolutely dropped the ball 
And one of the things that I talk about when people ask me, you know, to handicap this or that legal development is that there is, I, I think because of the internet and you as the Insta pundit might have a, a view on this. And if you haven't thought about it before, that would be perfect. Like I do have a modem. Because judicial decisions are instantly promulgated across the fruited plane, I think judges are more sensitive to what other judges are doing and the culture of the judiciary as a whole is more prone to um, homogeneity than it was when you and I were in law school. When it might be months before an opinion worked its way through all the circuits and you heard about what somebody in, you know, even, even in the popular, even in the busy districts, it still would be a while before you'd hear what happened in the Eastern District out in California or in Cal, you know, or even, uh, you know, in the district of New Jersey. Now, if it's newsworthy, it's, and now, so because that was what I saw happening during the Trump election challenges. I'm not saying that they were all necessarily well put together, well drafted. They were yada, 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 but it seemed that a judicial consensus, and that is a really bad word for those of us on center of right these days. The judicial consensus gelled very quickly. And it didn't matter who was your judge. And this is a Section 230 problem also, which is a very active area of my practice. Mm -hmm. All the judges agree that you basically can't sue any website for anything. Why could Section 230? Do you think I'm onto something there? No, you totally are. And, um, you know, that's – we could use more skin in the game. One of the things that, you know, my – I mean, I always tell my students – in administrative law, particularly, I say you could you know you learn all these principles, you learn all this law, you think it means something, and it does. But ultimately, when you get in front of a judge, one of the top priorities for the judge is always to ensure the smooth running of the machinery of government. And if you give a judge a super sound, super strong legal argument that will nonetheless throw a monkey wrench into the smooth functioning of the machinery of government, you're very likely to lose. And it doesn't matter how good your argument is, they will find a way not to do it. Because, you know, and this is actually like your dumber criminal defendants are totally right about this. Okay. Your dumber criminal defendants take the cynical view that everybody in the legal system works for the government. They don't want to, this way they're really dumb is they often don't want a public defender because they think the government pays their salary. That's stupid. They're often the best lawyer for your stuff. But, but they look at the judge. They say, the judge can't be fair to me because the judge gets a paycheck from the government, just like the prosecutor. They're fundamentally on the same side. And you tell them, well, you're just one of the dumber criminal defendants. I'm a lawyer. I went to law school. I know better. And yet, you know, there's a greater truth to what they say. In some ways, it's not true. But by God, if they've got a constitutional argument that would, for example, end plea bargains, it doesn't matter how good that argument is. Absolutely. The judge will tell you. And I've actually had a judge say something very much like this. The judge will say, that argument is almost irrefutable, but if I'm going to drive, actually his exact words, if I'm going to drive a bulldozer through every county courthouse in America, it's going to be the Supreme Court that's going to do it, not me. I will not buy that argument, even though I think it's right. And I mean, that's very common. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, the judiciary, if you think, you know, what's the Latin saying? Fiat justitia, ruat calum, let justice be done, though the heavens fall, never happened. That's not how they think. Not, unless you've got a judge with his or her own agenda to make a change. 
Right. And then you get lucky and then you become famous because you're the you're the guy who overturned this longstanding precedent. Guess what? Some judges decided that you were going to be bestowed with grace mm. and you're going to be the guy handing the bag. And, and, you know, and that's why big firms do so well. Because they represent the status quo and th they're not taking risky positions, which is, which is for what it's worth, though, what makes cases like uh, the uh, Elon Musk versus Twitter case fun. I mean, remember when we remember in the day when you had proxy battles and that because they're both using super duper top people. And a good old Delaware chancery judge is going to have to make a call. Well, and this is, I mean, we're, we're really sort of off topic, but maybe not really. I wrote a column a while back on why I was glad we had. This is tycoons. the singularity. It's the singularity, Glenn. I'm glad we have tycoons. And the reason why, you know, and it used to like when I was a kid, like comic books and movies had tycoons and there weren't many tycoons in the real world. But the, the management model then was very corporate. It was like IBM. Everything was done by committee. But the thing about tycoons is they're kind of wild cards. I mean, when you've got a society like ours that has become so institutionalized, uh, where so much stuff is done by committees, where, frankly, so many people in positions of authority are so gutless, uh, it's nice to have people who, who basically have fuck you money. Can I say that on a podcast? And who can just do what they think is right. And absolutely, you know, just just be a wild card to the system. And I think you know, right or wrong, we're very fortunate to have people who are willing to do that because um, most people are time servers and gutless wonders. And that's not even really their fault because that's just how most people are. That's just how most people are, you know, and, and you know, it does take a certain amount of courage if you are someone who has had the opportunity to get those top credentials and you and all your friends and classmates from school you know they're already you know earning the massive dollars because they plug the holes and show up on time and they you know they don't make the stupid argument that no one ever made before and 90% of the time they get the job done they get a job done they get it done right and they and you know, the publicly held client collects. So to say instead, I'm going to, I'm going to practice or I'm going to teach in a place that isn't at the top of the prestige heap, but where I can actually do what I want to do and do it right. As I see it, you know, it takes a certain amount of courage, but if things matter to you, if ideas matter to you, you really can't live any other way. Well, one of the things the practice of law is actually kind of nice about is that while there are advantages to big firms, um, honestly, I don't think they have the advantages that they had 20 or 30 years ago. I think technology has taken away a lot of the Having a big law library or, you know, a room full of proofreaders or word processors used to be a big deal. Now, eh. But so I think solo practitioners are, are a little bit like tycoons, have a little more freedom. But, you know, to illustrate this, that it's funny. Robert George, who's a professor at Princeton and teaches undergraduate con law, you, you know him, I'm sure, uh, has this thing he tells his classes every year. And he asked, he said, now, if you had lived in America before the Civil War, what would your position on slavery have been? 
Would you have been an abolitionist? Would you have been pro-slavery? Would you have just sort of been a muddle through person who kept your head down and didn't you know, really say anything? And of course, everybody is going to be an abolitionist. And then he tells them, you're lying to yourselves or you're lying to me because everybody was an abolitionist. And if you think you're different, tell me one thing you've done that involves standing up against what your peers and your family and people you want jobs from think is right. And of course, most of them don't have anything like that. Because again, most people don't do that. And you can't judge people too harshly for being like most people. Uh, you know, we're, we're a social species. We're somewhere between herd animals and pack animals. So, you know, in fact, we're evolutionarily wired to want our peers to think well of us. But nonetheless, uh, it, it doesn't make for very much in the way of incisive thought or uh, whatever. Or, or creativity or democracy or air. Yeah. So or morality, because unless you just believe that whatever the, and apparently the White House now believes that whatever the majority wants at the moment is moral. And if you disagree with the majority, you're an extremist. Uh, so and, that, the, and then you're not counted anymore as right. part of the majority, even in the minority, right? Just, which makes just, majorities much easier to achieve. It's not part of the policy at all. You, you, by not believing what everyone else does, you've uh, uh, ostracized yourself, I guess. Uh, well, you know, that's that's one school of thought. Uh, it's not a traditionally American way of looking at things. You know, we have the same one. Andrew Jackson, one man with courage makes a majority, I think. Um, that's not the well, honestly. The trouble, I think the current administration does believe that, and that's what they're afraid of, actually. And, and, they, and I, they know the name of that one man as well. I mean, you don't have to love Trump or anything about Trump in particular to recognize the objective valence, the, the just, you know, the absolute value of the terror with which he strikes this entire system. Which, to be honest, I don't really understand. And this probably means that even I am not cynical enough. But really, there, you know, Clyde Tombaugh discovered the planet Pluto, not by looking and seeing Pluto initially, but by just seeing that other planets' orbits didn't look right. And that guided him toward what was really going on. So when I look at, like, Trump and the anti, I'm like, I don't see why Trump is such an existential threat to the establishment, really. And yet I see the establishment constantly acting like he is. And while I yield to few people in my belief that the establishment is made up of idiots, uh, still, when it comes to self-preservation, they're pretty good. So I'm like, what am I missing? Why are they so afraid of him? What, what threat does he pose to them uh, that they have to break all the rules, expose themselves as liars and fools uh, and uh, expose so many of our institutions as being politically corrupted to the max, and even sometimes bragging about it, uh, what, what threat does he pose that uh, leads to all that? And honestly, I don't get it. I'll tell you. Well, there you See, go. I want this to be a learning experience for you as well, Glenn, because he's an outsider. And regardless of his policies, he did not come through the system. He did not come through D.C. He did not come through the Ivy League. He barely, barely scratched through Wharton undergraduate. He's from Queens. He's basically new money, notwithstanding his uh, his Aryan heritage. Uh, he's he's vulgar. Okay, he's a Gentile Jew. He's pushy and obnoxious. I like that money, spending money he doesn't have and the parvenu and all that's what he is and he could be 
he could be governing like Mitt Romney and he would be the same threat because if Donald Trump can do it, then anyone can do it. As opposed to what do they have now? Actually, only former vice presidents are allowed to run or, 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 or cabinet members run for president. And even if they are no longer mentally fit to be president, it doesn't matter because they're not making the decisions anyway. It's all about the system. It's all about the apparatchiks. One last thing, because I promised you I wouldn't keep you a whole hour here. You, you know, I mentioned starting out with, with, with Amy Wax, and obviously we were familiar with Ilya Shapiro. You're in a little bit safer place. You're further away from the coast. But looking out at what's going on across academia and the law schools in particular, and I've discussed this with David Latt, who had the most, I don't want to say the most, but a surprisingly rosy, uh, sanguine view of, of why this won't be a problem so much in the legal profession, because ultimately you need to stand, and Amy Wax said this too, you ultimately you have to stand up there and be able to make an, a dialectical argument. You need to understand what your adversary, I'm like, I don't know, because I think institutions are being swept. We have someone on the Supreme Court who during her, uh, you know, confirmation hearings felt comfortable saying, I'm not going to tell, I'm not going to answer the question of what defines a woman. So that's a, we've crossed. So that my introduction to the question is, 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 is it going to get worse in the legal profession? Is it going to get worse on the courts? Well, you always think that it can't get worse and then you're usually wrong. Um, what I will say is, you know, during the civil rights era, there were concerted attacks on lawyers who represented uh, civil rights figures. And when that happened, generally the bar rallied around them and said, look, whether we agree with them or not, you know, we're, we're going to stand up for the institutional role of lawyers. Nowadays, the institutional role in any profession falls before political demands right away. Doctors, lawyers, whatever it is. Uh, and so, no. And it doesn't help that the deans of our top law schools are mostly big, fat losers. And I and and you know uh, whether it's at Penn, what, I mean Bill Trainer at Georgetown. I went to law school with him. He seemed like a nice guy in law school. He was like a year ahead of me. Um, but I mean, give me a break. Uh, the proper response. Uh, have you ever seen the movie The Social Network? Yes. So when the Winklevoss twins go into Larry Summers' office to complain about Mark Zuckerberg allegedly stealing their idea, Larry Summers just looks at him and says, "You, you being here." That is wrong. That's what a dean should say to any student who comes and says, you need to fire this professor because of their beliefs, is you being here is wrong. You're here to learn to be lawyers. If you tell me that a view you hear upsets you so much you can't function, you here's a dime, go call your mother, tell her you have serious doubt you're gonna be a lawyer because that's what lawyers do. And if you can't do that, get the hell out of here. You don't belong in law school. Go to some place where hothouse flowers never have to hear an objectionable view. And that's not here. That's not what we do. Now, the view a lot of people have is, oh, once these hothouse flowers get out of law school into the real world of law practice, it'll be different. Um, that would be true if the people running law firms weren't the same losers who are, in many cases, deeds of our top law schools, uh, as, as you already discussed. So uh, if you don't have people in leadership positions who actually have backbones and you know, I don't think we select for that, um, then wait, you're screwed. I mean, sorry, I just don't think that that's, that's going to work out. So yeah, I think it's going to get worse. It's going to get, you know, if only, if only we had made Brandy Barnett president when they, we had the time, there was, you know? there was, there was a moment when that seemed, 
Glenn, thank you so much. Thank you. I'm sure, you know, it's really great talking to you and you and I have spoken many times, but never face to face. I used to put these remarks at the beginning of my many podcast interviews. Now my listeners are satisfied that at least I don't say it. And it's Randy, the first time we saw each other on Zoom, tried to hug each other. <laughs> and which, you know, he was fine, but I had shards. That's <laughs> yeah, an old Woody Allen joke. Glenn, enjoy the rest of your weekend. Thanks so much. And uh, I really appreciate you making the time for this and uh, digging, digging the emails out of the, uh, out of the spam folder. <laughs> thanks so much. See ya. Hey, thank you for listening to the Coleman Nation podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. For more information, please visit the show's website at coleman-nation.com. That's coleman-nation.com. Or you can visit my blog at likelihoodofconfusion.com. Join us next time on the Coleman Nation podcast and have a great day.